for those of you that have been here, that's a celebration. All right. Uh, yeah, so uh, we're going to be diving into uh, more of 2 Corinthians today. I'm just giving an opportunity to make sure that the microphone is doing its thing, it seems to be. Everybody, yeah, okay. So I told y'all a few weeks ago that we had some work done on the sound system, and uh, for whatever reason, my microphone was creating some issues only on Sunday morning, but they think they got it fixed this week. So, uh, all right. Well, uh, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, I want to tell you that part of the way that we teach here at City Church, uh, going verse by verse, it has an effect on me in, 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 in this regard is that reading scripture, right? A lot of times when we read the Bible, especially when we do like these year plans where we read the scripture, we're, we're consuming information very fast. We're also looking at the text based on really like uh, the way that modern language interprets words. And so there is a lot that gets overlooked, even for myself when I'm uh, reading through scripture. And today's text is one of those that I just had not really uh, ever seen what Paul was doing inside of it. And so it was a little bit emotional. Uh, I'll explain why as we get into it. And very relevant, very relevant to what's happening in the world around us, specifically what's happening inside of the church in the United States of America uh, so, 2 Corinthians, let's stand to our feet for the reading of the Word. You know, sometimes we read just a handful of verses, and sometimes we read a bunch. Today's one of those, we're going to read a bunch. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you, for you stand firm in your faith. Now, just a reminder that the chapters and verses were not inserted by the authors. So Paul wrote this as one letter, right? And so these are continuous thoughts. And so we broke this up into a thought, not based on the chapter. So we roll right into chapter 2. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is not, I mean, is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So that we would know, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are 
not ignorant of his designs. When I, come, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So uh, I kind of have titled today's message, Forgiveness is More Than Saying Sorry. Uh, and that's in honor of my wife. She can tell you why uh, one-on-one. But let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. Lord, I thank you for your word, the direction and the hope that it brings and the correction that it brings. It gives us better lives, Lord. Uh, we pray that we would be effective in all that we do as followers of you. I pray that those that are in the room today who are running from you are negligent in their faith, God, that they would be convicted, that they would be drawn back uh, into right living. Lord, we love you and praise you in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. All right, you can be seated. So uh, this is a, a text today uh, around the idea of forgiveness. And forgiveness just like so many other words in Scripture, guys, it is, um, there's a redefining of terminology that happens around us. It's very active in the world today. And it, when we think of forgiveness, right, um, we can immediately come up with these ideas. It's like, well, it doesn't really matter what they've done. We just let it go. Uh, and that's not really the picture of biblical forgiveness. Uh, and I want to talk about how forgiveness is tethered to love, right? That these are really, um, they're not, they're, they can't be separated. So let's go here in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 23. He says, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrain from coming again to Corinth. So Paul says, um, I was initially on my way to Corinth, right? And, and just as a reminder, and for those that have not been here, this is not the second letter that Paul wrote to Corinth, right? It's just the second letter that we have access to. But he clearly is communicating here about other information that he has at, different, at some different time presented to them. And he says that he wants to call God to witness against himself that it was to spare you that I refrain from coming again to Corinth. So there are three basic ways that this gets uh, translated. One of those is to say that God becomes the witness of my soul. The other is that God uh, can be the one to avenge my perjury, meaning that if I'm lying to you, let God come and strike me down. But really what Paul is trying to communicate here is that what, in, what I'm saying is truthful, what I'm telling you is the truth. And truth here is not subjective to the individual. Paul says, I need you to understand that as God is my witness, right? I, I did not come into your presence, right? It was for a reason. It was to spare you. 
right? And this idea in the Greek, it is to abstain, to forbear. I intentionally did not come to you. I wrote you a letter instead. It was a, it was a benefit for you for me to do that. And this is why, because Paul knew his frustration could wound. As a, as a dad, I, I can get this, right? I can get that there are times where I need to navigate a conversation with my children, but sometimes it's better to wait to navigate the conversation with my children, right? Because if I come in the moment of frustration, I can wound in a way that is not needed, that is not necessary. And so Paul says, instead what I've done is I've written this letter, I've sent it over to you, Instead of showing up in person, I decided I wanted to wait. He explains why in a moment. Verse 24, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. And Paul reiterates something that needs to be reiterated to every person who calls themselves a Christian. All right? The only power he had was to assist them in their Christian growth. Right? I am, I am not the middleman as a pastor between people and Jesus. That's not how this thing works. You're called to a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus. Right? You are to know him yourself. My job is just to help with support around that. Paul says, listen, it was not me sitting here having a conversation with God and then coming as some type of intermediator. No, I am here in a support role because the only way to stand against evil is to have a faith of your own. So if you don't have a faith, right, then that's where the initial problem begins. You can't go, well, man, I go to church. I listen to the pastor. He talks to God for me. That's not a biblical response, right? You might hear those things and you might think those things. You might even know people that kind of that kind of have that type of philosophy or ideology, but it's, it's, it doesn't line up with Scripture. Paul says, it is not for me to be the one that's standing in the middle. No, instead, I am here as a support, right? And he uses this word in the faith, and that is confidence or fidelity. And fidelity meaning faithfulness to a person, cause, or belief demonstrated by continuing loyalty and support. So he talks about it's your faith, it's your fidelity. It's your consistency. It's not me being consistent. It's not like, well, you know, hey, I'm a part of this group of people and there's some really great individuals in it who love the Lord, so I'm in good hands. No, this is about you having an individual relationship with Christ. And he says in here, he says, for I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Again, Paul's reiterating that he is aware of the pain that this causes them. He knows that by bringing correction, whether it is through a letter or in person, they are not going to want to be corrected, right? Nobody nobody lives for correction. And this idea where he talks about it being painful, right? This is grief, sorrow, affliction. And and this was one of the things that really began to get me uh, because it, it began to minister to me. And so I just want to share with you what the Holy Spirit was kind of doing in my heart as I was preparing for this, is that ministers of the gospel are not exempt from the hurt of Christians who waver in their faith. When people begin to rebel or turn their back on God or they begin to live in sin or they just defiantly, you know, ignore biblical reason or teaching... You just need to know that ministers that are in your life, people that are mentoring and discipling you, it it hurts. 
it hurts. And, and, and Carmen and I, we have experienced a great deal of pain over the years pastoring. I remember the first time I applied for a, a staff position in a church, I was sitting before the elder board, and uh, one of the elders, uh, his name was Larry, he said, uh, what are you going to do one day when you're burned out? And I was like, burned out? Are you kidding? Like, this is like my dream. I've always wanted to do this. I'll never be burned out. And he was like, well, what will you do if something happens and you do get burned out, right? I could not process that. I could not think through what that would look like because I was unaware of the amount of hurt I could feel from people who I invest my life in that sit at my table day after day, week after week, year upon year, who will just walk out in rebellion and anger. And, and it is very hurtful, right? It creates pain. And so he says, for if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? So he's telling them that there is a discomfort that comes from being honest, right? And this is, this is something I've had to learn to do as a pastor because there are a lot of times where I get up on a Sunday, especially early years of the church, where I would just avoid topics because I did not want to make people in the room uncomfortable. But Paul is talking about a pain that brings joy, right? A pain that brings joy. Without the pain, there is just a, just a consistent ongoing type of suffering. And so the goal is to see behavior reformed. Man, I'm telling you, as we've been going through these letters by Paul over the last couple of years, it's pretty crazy. I mean, Paul is constantly talking about behavior, the behavior of the believer. And how contradictory is that to what we see in sitting on the bookshelves of Christian living, right, when we're walking through Walmart or our bookstore or even the Christian bookstore around these ideas around how, like, just learning how to cope with who you are. And instead, Paul says, no, like, like you got to change the way you're living. Grow up. Grow up. I mean, he gets frustrated about it. He's like, man, how many times do I have to tell you that the lifestyle that you're living is sin? Change the way that you're living. So clearly, right, God cares about behavior, God cares about behavior, and it's consistent throughout Scripture. He goes on here in verse 3. He says, And as I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice, for I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. So Paul does not want to suffer anymore. Paul is being honest. He's like, man, I come into these churches, I invest in these people, I show up, and what do I get? I get these conversations where they go, well, Pastor uh, Paul or, 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 you know, whatever they called him, Apostle Paul at the time, and they say, Paul, you know, the truth is so-and-so from down the street, they, they're preaching a completely different gospel, and I like it because it lets my granddad feel good about himself, or it lets my, my best friend feel like they're a good person, and what you're saying doesn't help them feel good about themselves. And so he was constantly being attacked because there were other gospels being preached, other versions of the gospel, and Paul says, look, I'm not wavering. I, I get it. Like, these are hard conversations. I don't like these conversations either. They cause him pain. They cause him to suffer. That's the, that's the revelation. If you don't get anything else today, I want you to understand. Paul says, like, I don't enjoy telling you that the way you're living or the way you're acting isn't the best way because it, all it does is upset you. It makes you walk out the door and have conversations about how unreasonable the pastor is, right? And how he just doesn't get, it's 2022, right? I'm just projecting onto Paul right now. 
And he says, I, I get it, man. This is, I, I don't even want to show up because when I show up, it's going to be uncomfortable because people are not receiving the biblical gospel. But Paul has hope of restoration. Paul is hopeful for restoration. And I think of it like this, right? So um, when, uh, when, my, when I was young, my, my dad was uh, uh, in the military and he... Uh, just happened to be on base when uh, George Bush Sr. was there and took time to come and meet some of the troops. And so my dad had had the opportunity to shake his hand, and my dad came home all excited about that, right? He was like, I just, I just you know, met the president of the United States. That's a, you know, regardless of whether you like the guy or not, it's still probably at the time, you know, the 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 most uh, powerful uh, individual leader in the world. And I had just been a rotten mess that day at school, right? Like, I don't even remember what I did, but I'd gotten notes sent home and whatever. It was just a bad day. And so my dad comes home and he has to navigate now what he's hoping to be an exciting time to tell us the story of the time that he met the president and uh, instead he's having to deal with me, right? Um, and I, I, it makes me think about just military people in general who are deployed. And, you know, you have kids that are at home, and I hear this story pretty regularly that uh, you've got one parent at home. They're trying really, really as, to the best of their ability to, to raise the children, to help the children to behave right. One is deployed. And so instead of waiting until they come home to navigate bad behavior, a lot of times they want to deal with it immediately, right? And so I've heard people who are servicemen and women who are separated from family. I've heard them so many times on the phone. Let me talk to them right now, right? Get them on the phone. Listen, you're not going to talk to mom. You're not going to talk to dad that way, whatever that looks like, right? And, and they bring discipline and they do that. Why? Because Paul, just like them, they don't want to come home and have to deal with all of that. They want it to be, they want the, they want the restoration to have already begun, right? So Paul's saying, like, I don't want to be in the room with you because it hurts me, but I also know that it's got to be dealt with, so I sent the letter immediately, right? So Paul's joy is found when Christian brothers are living rightly before the Lord. Look here at what he says. He says, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish. The picture here of affliction, this is persecution, tribulation, meaning that even writing the letter was a difficult thing to do, anguish, this was distress, this was anxiety, and this really is what separates Paul as a leader from what we saw of leaders among primarily the Jews, even the Pharisees at the time, they saw themselves as being exempt from the same standards to which they held others. So it was really easy, right, for the Pharisees to bring correction or condemnation onto a group of people publicly because they believed that they were different. They believed that they were better. There was an elitist mentality. And can I tell you, like, like, if you're a parent and you parent from this, like, elitist mentality of, like, yeah, I, I'm, the, I'm the dad, I'm the mom, I can do what I want, and you don't have any say in it. Let me just tell you something. You are presenting correction to a child who will not understand that one day they will be in your position. And so it should not bring joy to a parent to bring correction to their kids, right? Because why? Because we are fully aware of our own need for correction. 
for our own need for discipline. And so Paul is not laying out here going like, he, he's not going, well, listen, I'm a better person than you. Jesus showed up and met me on the road to Damascus. What do you have? Nothing good. Now be quiet. No. He says like, this hurts. This is painful because I know the tension that it brings, right? He says, I wrote to you with much affliction, anguish of heart, right? With many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know what? The abundant love that I have for you. What's Paul saying? Discipline is love. Discipline is love. So when we are engaged in relationships, right, with people that we care about, we cannot view, the world wants to view discipline as being this like, oh, man, that's a bad thing. Don't do it. I, I was doing pre-marriage counseling one time with a couple, and one of the things that we will talk about oftentimes is uh, uh, discipline for children. Uh, you know, the idea of, you know, well, who's going to Who's going to clean the toilet, right? This is one of those things. Like when you get married, it's like there's sometimes there's an often assumption. It's like, well, they were going to clean the toilet, right? No, somebody has to clean the toilet because if somebody doesn't clean the toilet, the toilet becomes unacceptable, right? And the same thing happens with disciplining children. There can be a mindset that's like, oh, I don't want to discipline the children. I'm going to leave that to them. And a lot of times it falls to the man, right? It's like, oh, no, that's the dad's responsibility. Let him do that. Mom's going to nurture uh, but we were, I was doing this premarriage counseling one time, and, and, and the, the lady spoke up and said, oh, there will be no discipline in our house. And I was like, oh, well, what does that look like? No, 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 no. Our kids are not going to get disciplined. That is barbaric. Uh, our kids will have, we'll just sit down and have a conversation with them and hope that they do better, right? And I was like, okay, okay. And what if they don't do better? Oh, that's easy. We just have another conversation with them. Okay, okay, I got you. And what if that doesn't work? Oh, well, you're not getting it. We just keep talking, right? I'm like, well, you're going to discipline them through boredom and, right? Uh, I don't know if you're like that, but like my kids, will, when we do, because we do sit down and talk, right? There will be times where my kids are like, okay, get to the point, right? I can see it in their eyes. It's like, do we have to keep talking about this, right? Discipline is, a necess is necessary and it is an act of love. And so people who are like, oh, I don't believe in discipline. Let me tell you something. They are selfish and egocentric because the idea of live and let live, let people do what they want to do, all that says is I don't care enough about them to help them. And it's reality. If you just go, well, it's their life. They can do what they want. You are saying I don't care enough about them. Now, it might be that you're dealing with another adult who doesn't want to hear it, so you have to figure out how to have these conversations and bring correction and bring discipline, and sometimes it's face-to-face, -face, sometimes it's through a letter. When it's a child, sometimes it's taking away something or giving them a nice little love tap, right? But somehow you've got to figure this thing out because if you do not, what you are saying is, is it's uncomfortable for me to bring discipline, so I don't want to do it. And that's selfish. And that's not love. He goes on, now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. This again, this, was just, this is just a little bit mind-blowing when we think about the ramifications of church member behavior right? People who call a church home, this is where I go, this is my home, and then all of a sudden, they've got some issue with the pastor. Typically, it's with the pastor, right? And the intent is probably to strike at the pastor. Paul says that when they begin to reject the gospel that I've presented, okay, 
They aren't really hurting me, but he says in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. So the unintended consequence of attacking leadership is the impact on the community, right? And I thought to myself, man, that's actually really true, right? When somebody says, Pastor Jim, I don't like you talking about this, and they come at Pastor Jim, and they make comments to Pastor Jim, and then they go and they have conversations with people in the church about Pastor Jim, what they are doing is, is they are aiming the, the, the weapon directly at me, but Paul says that the problem is, is that all of that energy expended creates a shockwave to where people in the church, and I just, I'm trying to think about this practically for a moment, start going, where is so-and-so, Right? I mean, they, they were super involved. They were doing this. They, their testimony was, man, the church has changed my life. And where did they go, right? I mean, I, I had a guy one time tell me um, uh, following a service on a Sunday that the, that the church had impacted him in, in a way he could not describe. He said, I have never been so impacted in my life like I have been at this church. Thank you for being my pastor. And then the next Sunday, tell me after service, he would never be back because he couldn't disagree with me more, right? And people are like, where did that guy go, right? Well, some people know because human nature says, I'm gonna have some conversations with some people and let them know, right? Now, am I telling you that there is never a time where a pastor gets it wrong? No, there are lots of times where a pastor gets it wrong, but there is a right way to go and sit down and have those conversations and be in community. And Paul says what's going on is these people are going, no, that's not the gospel. This is the gospel. Well, what is that gospel producing? Well, we go back to his first letter to the, that we have, 1 Corinthians, and he says, you've got somebody in your church who is sleeping with his father's wife, and you're okay with it, right? I mean, this is, there is a sexual depravity that somebody is saying, man, gospel-wise, this is good to go. This is all solid, right? But it's not. Go on here to verse 6. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So the idea being that the punishment is one that makes the individual feel at odds with those with whom they were in community. And so a lot of times what happens is, is that person rises up, they're preaching a gospel that's contradictory to scripture, they end up leaving, and now there's this weird awkwardness, right? Okay, that person has been, they feel rejected by the majority. So you're sitting there at a restaurant one Sunday after church, and they come walking in, and you're like, oh, I, they used to go, where did they go? And there's all this weird tension in the room, and you don't know what to say, and right? And, it, and it's just, just this awkwardness. Paul says, that's that tension from the majority, right, that is, that is the punishment. The punishment is, I'm no longer in those people's lives, right? And Paul has already said, going back to 1 Corinthians, that, that gives them the opportunity outside of community to hopefully find a place where they find the truth and they repent. He goes on here, he says, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. The idea being that somebody that rebels against the gospel and comes up with some perversion of the gospel uh, and they begin to believe it, they begin to teach it, like, like they have not entered into an eternal punishment brought on by the community of believers, right? Eternal punishment, that's going to stand in judgment before God one day. The goal is to see, refer to see restoration take place, to see a reform take place in their behavior and in their lives. And so he says, 
he says, allow the awkwardness to be theirs, right? And he, he, he does a good job. We're going to see this. The idea is like, like, don't look at them when you see them out in public and laugh at them or scream and yell at them or whatever it is that might be the thing that, or even ignore them, right? He, he's also telling you that this is not a begging to return. This is a thing that I had, I've had to learn as a pastor. It's like, it's, it, when somebody is toxic, when somebody is just, they just they're just not going to be filled with, with repentance. They're not going to be filled with the joy of community. Like, don't keep begging them to come back, right? right? He, says, he says, show them love, show them forgiveness, right? Be kind to them, but they've got to sort this thing out. Why? Because we aren't the intermediary. Paul says, I can't save them. Only them directly in relationship with God can bring forth salvation. So he says, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Now, this verse is actually one of those. There's not many, but it's one of those that when you move from one translation to the other, there ends up being some like discrepancy in the way it's translated. So I wanted to put it for you uh, just word for word out of the Greek. The idea is, therefore, I exhort you to confirm toward him love. This is not... Um, your, the, the, the problem is, is that a lot of times we, we read these things and we think, okay, the way that I love my son, the way that I love my daughter, that's, that's the type of love I've got to give to everybody, right? When it talks about love, I've got to just have this like, like unending, undying, no matter what type of love. That's not what Paul's saying here. What Paul is saying is, is that love is not yours to prove or provide, but to exemplify, right? He's not saying you've got to go and figure out how to convince this person that you care about them. He says, just walk in love, right? Sin is sin. Wrong is wrong. Bad behavior is bad behavior. I still love you. I still care about you. I'm praying for you, but I am not going to sit here and go, let bygones be bygones when it comes to the gospel, right? It is not an act of love to go, well, we'll make this concession, I guess. It'll be fine. Nobody will talk about it. We'll move on. No, no, no. I'm going to exemplify love by continuing to have the hard conversations that need to be had, not walking away in frustration, anger, and hate, but instead exemplifying love. And so listen to me. Love is not tolerance, acceptance, complacency, or any of the modern catchphrases that justify sin. Love is not any of these things that go, well, your sin's going to be okay. That is not a biblical view of love, okay? That, again, I think moves very closely into the territory of selfishness. I don't want to deal with this. Paul says it hurts to deal with this. It's painful to deal with this. We all can get that it's difficult to deal with discipline. And, and what happens is, is that for our own benefit, so that I don't have to feel uncomfortable, I'm just going to let them do their own thing and say that it's loving. But it is not loving. Paul says it's, it creates anguish, but it produces joy. Verse 9, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. I think this is interesting that we find this throughout Scripture, and we looked at this when we were in the prophecy series, this idea of being tested. There are many times where we walk through difficult situations, scenarios, where it is simply a test, right, to find out if that thing that we're proclaiming is that thing that we're going to walk out, right? We've said it, but do we believe it, 
right? Do we live it out? And the word test is proof or to know. And the test here is that of Christian discipline and forgiveness. The test that Paul is laying out is will you bring discipline when the gospel is being taught incorrectly and will you forgive those who repent, right? Can you call sin what it is and forgive those who repent? And this, this is the picture of what this test looks like for the church is can you stand up for the gospel even when it's not comfortable, even when everybody else goes, oh, well, that's just mean. No, it's actually not mean. It's loving. It is caring. It is about the fact that I am invested in someone else's life and want the best for them. And then at the point that they go, yeah, you're right. I was totally wrong. Can you go, hey, I love you. Come on. Let's do life. Let's keep moving, right? I mean, we don't get better examples of this than good parenting. When parents are doing their job well, they are disciplining their children even when they don't want to, even when it's uncomfortable, and they are doing what? They are then living life with their children. And I just, I'll pause here on the discipline thing and just say this. I I tell parents all the time, too often parents view discipline as a reaction. And, and, And let me explain. So a child is acting up publicly, and then they begin to go, well, what's more uncomfortable, to let them continue to act up or for me to discipline them? Well, I would say for a lot of parents, they go, man, I feel it's uncomfortable right now because everyone's staring, so I'd rather discipline them and have everybody see me as a disciplinarian. But those are, those are not the right ways to discipline, right? That's not the right methodology. Who cares what anyone else thinks? right? Do you love your child, right? If you love your child, then don't discipline for now, discipline for eternity, right? I'm not trying to teach my children how to behave when people are around. I'm teaching them how to live lives that raise up grandchildren that know how to live lives, that raise up grandchildren that know how to live lives, that one day the family's in eternity with Jesus, right? I'm not trying to make it comfortable on myself, right? And so sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's embarrassing. Sometimes I'm sitting there. There have been times. I'll, I'll give you a great example. Uh, I won't name the child, but I had a child one time. We were in a public place, and they started pitching a fit, screaming and yelling, and wouldn't stop. And they, would, they were screaming about what they wanted. Carmen remembers this. And all I did was I picked the child up. I went out to the car cranked it up for air conditioning, sat them in their seat right there, and we sat there for almost an hour, screaming and yelling, and me just turning on, listening to music. As soon as they got it done, we had a conversation. I said, you're not going to do this. You're not going to get your way, right? And I ask my kids all the time, how often do you get your way? Never. Well, we can go down this road, but I'm raising you up to be a good adult, right? Not to make it comfortable on me when everybody's looking, right? And so, so sometimes... The way that we discipline, we have to be thinking in terms of, do I really love and care about this person or do I really love and care what people think about me, right? I want to see them grow up to, I want to see their behavior be courageous so they can function in society. Verse 10, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So this is what Paul says. This is good. This is, this is going to tether us back into Matthew. He says, Paul says that I trust the testimony of the church leadership. 
He says, you guys, I'm not present, but I'm getting word that y'all have dealt with some of this. You've brought some discipline. People have repented. And because you have forgiven, I am forgiving. Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The idea being here that when, when in community the people go, the, the church leadership says, hey, they're repentant, we forgive them. Then the church rallies around and goes, we're, we're, we're on board with that, right? I'm not second guessing it, right? I'm going to trust that this person has walked through a process of restoration. And this idea is that, that, the, that, that we have the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What does that look like? That means that those things that we bind here on earth, they get bound in heaven. And so as we can look at those who have repented and say, man, I forgive you, and we can do that in unity, right? We're binding something up for that individual and for ourselves into eternity. Uh, and so the idea is that it's good to be in harmony. And Paul is at the top of the food chain if you want to talk about leadership, right? I mean, he's the guy that planted the church. He's the guy that they're listening to. He's the guy. That's, and he says, look, if the leadership is, is at a place of forgiveness, I'm there with them, right? Because I, I trust you guys. And I want to be a part of what's happening in harmony. And so if forgiveness is given, let us all give it. If the person that's been wounded and offended says, I believe that there's been repentance and I'm good to go, then it is important for all of us to walk in that forgiveness. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his design. So he talks about this idea, I forgive because you've forgiven. And he says, I do this so that we would not be outwitted, right? And this picture of being outwitted is to have being taken advantage of, overreach, or defrauded. And he says that refusing forgiveness just gives the enemy more territory. So we have to bring discipline because of love. And now we have to be able to extend forgiveness because we love. And when we don't extend forgiveness, when all we do is bring discipline and then we stay angry and frustrated and we don't move into the position of forgiveness, what happens? The enemy gets more territory. And we know how the enemy works, Right? I, the question that comes to mind is why do we not apply that knowledge? Why do we not apply the knowledge of forgiveness into our lives? As Christians, we can just stay so bitter and so frustrated and we can hold on to wrongdoings, right? I mean, I can't even tell you how many times like, like you know, Sunday family lunch can be about the wrong that was done to me at a church 15 years ago, Right? I mean, I meet people all the time. You try to share the gospel. They're like, yeah, I used to go to church, but you just, you know, the church, blah, 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 blah. And I, I heard it said this way one time. I think it's just great. It's like, you know, have you ever gotten sick from something you ate, right, when you were out to eat? Yeah. Well, did you stop eating out? No. You know what I'm saying? Like, like you didn't, I mean, how many of you have gotten sick at Taco Bell and then been back at Taco Bell the next day? I'm just saying. Yeah, not me, but you, many of you. My, my wife will go through Taco Bell with the kids because they'll be begging for it. And she'll send me a message, what do you want? And I'm always, nothing. <laughs> I'll eat dirt and grass from outside or sand. <laughs> Maybe a Mexican pizza occasionally. But the idea is that, like, we don't view anything else in life that way. But, man, it is popular to view the church that way, right? Oh, I, man, I tried church, but I got hurt. I went to this church and blah, 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 so I don't do church anymore. 
you know? Well, that doesn't work for us when we think about putting food into our bodies. Why does that work for us when we talk about feeding our spirits, right? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. So when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went to Macedonia. So remember, Titus had taken a letter. This is one of the letters I was saying. He had taken it to them. He was looking to meet back up with Titus. He wanted to know what the response was. Why? Because Paul has his own anxieties, his own uh, struggles with bringing discipline. It's not his favorite thing, but he knows it's the right thing to do. So he does it. He's looking for the response. He gets over here to Troas and Titus is not there. So Paul knew of the trouble that some had created in Corinth and was filled with anxiety when Titus did not show up as planned. This is what this tells us, that when there is drama among one, it creates an imbalance among all. And this did not just impact, now it was not just impacting the church in Corinth. The people of Troas were robbed of ministry because of the behavior of some in Corinth. And just to give you a perspective of what this looks like, here's Troas, uh, here's Corinth, and what does he do, right? Well, he knows that Corinth is part of his journey, so he cuts his time short ministering to these people, right? So here are lives that are impacted, and he begins to make his way to Macedonia. Why? Because he is hoping that because Titus isn't here, he's going to get word of where Titus is at somewhere along the way. And so when we don't operate with church discipline, when we don't come and say, hey, man, this was out of line, this was wrong, we ultimately can create hurt that can create shockwaves that make their way beyond the walls of even the, the four walls of the local church, and that, minister, men, that people being ministered to in other locations can be impacted. Think about a church that falls into some type of dysfunction and all of the missionaries that they support the impact that it has on them. When I was a kid, we attended a church, and the pastor um, had an idea that he was going to merge with another church that was in a different denomination, and part of the paperwork that they had to sign was that they would not support missionaries outside of the denomination's network. The problem was is that there were families that had been in that in our local church their entire lives that had moved to missions fields, uh, to, to, to the mission field around the world because of the message that had been preached from the gospel. They depended on the giving of that local church. And the pastor said, no, this is more important and was ready to just cut it all off and tell these people, you're going to have to figure it out on your own because we're joining this other denomination. It created a revolt within the church. I mean, it created a massive split that to this day is still talked about, right? But who, who all suffered? It wasn't just the people in, uh, in, in the local town at the local church, but families were being impacted around the world. Why? Because somebody was using their authority in a way that was manipulating others. And really, honestly, hopefully, I mean, because I, listen, I get it that sometimes those things just happen. They're part of our human nature. Hopefully, you know, you're, you have leadership that's willing to go, okay, yeah, I see where this is wrong, and I, I, I'm sorry, I repent. Let's get this thing corrected, right? Unfortunately, that's not what happened in this case, and families were impacted. But it, this is not just a, just a 
Paul New Testament moment, right? This is something that actively happens around the world today. And so the decisions that are made internally have great impacts around the world. Uh, Verse 14, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So something about what happened in Macedonia shifted his thoughts even right here. He's talking about it. He's got anxiety. He's telling you, man, this, I had some anguish. So I went from Troas to uh, Macedonia. But man, Macedonia was good. Man, and he begins, we just see a shift in the way that he's writing. This is actually not uncommon for Paul, right? So um, uh, it helps me relate with him, probably some attention deficit right there. And so the Holy Spirit just is really easily able to get him to move from like, man, this is really heavy. Let's get on to the good stuff. And something happened in Macedonia, right? So Uh, He uses an analogy here. It was common for incense to be burned as the victor of a battle entered the town, okay? So post-battle, they would uh, fill the room with an aroma, fill the city streets with an aroma, and the idea was that as the victor of the battle came in, everyone would associate that smell with the victor, right? It's just like, you know, Krispy Kreme, right? You associate that smell of those donuts with what's going to come into your mouth in a moment, right? Okay? Uh, it's the hope of every successful restaurant out there is that you're going to associate the smell, right? Well, they wanted to use the aromas to associate victory and power with individuals. And look at what he says. He says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So the knowledge of Christ, we become the ones. He says, man, I got to Macedonia. Man, praise be to God, because there was a triumphal procession, right? In the midst of what's being impacted around the world, Macedonia, man, these people must have been on their face. Something was going on, because as he comes into their presence, as he probably meets back up with Titus, his heart is filled with joy, and he is reminded that the knowledge of Christ is where it is everywhere. It is unstoppable that those who are living in this world are going to know who God is. He says, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life who is sufficient for these things. This is an interesting concept too here. He says that for some, they are drawn to life. And for some, they are drawn to death. So then the the knowledge of God creates an aroma. And for those who are willing, it brings them to life. But for those who have refused to accept God, accept God right? They have, they're an atheist. They've got some form of nihilism. They've, they've rejected the fact that there could be a God that loves them. They oftentimes get filled with such anger, right? And so the, the fragrance of the knowledge of God is still there. But instead of associating it with victory and hope and salvation, and man, it makes them filled with it. With, with, in, with, a, with an intense anger and a hostility towards the gospel. And he says, so that aroma, man, it's everywhere. The aroma of the creator, the God of all gods, the king of kings. And it draws some to life. And unfortunately, it draws some to death. And then he ends this thought here in verse 17. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So Paul says, 
Let God be the witness of my soul that I knew it was not a good idea for me to come directly to you. It was better for me to write a letter and send it to you. I was frustrated because you were rejecting the gospel. It's painful, but I know it brings joy because when we accept the true gospel, we adjust our behavior to his ways. It's better, right? He says, man, I got in the midst of just my own despair thinking about you, but then I'm reminded that the presence of God can be tangibly present everywhere in the world. And he says, just know this, that we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. And what does he say? He says, this is not a game. This is not a game. It's not a game. I'm not up here just playing a game with you guys. And he uses this language, peddlers. Um, And when we go into the Greek, it is to adulterate, to deal for the purpose of gain. He says, I'm not bringing the, the word of God to you this way because it makes me feel good because somehow it benefits me. No, I mean, in times he's frustrated because those that bring the false gospel make more money than he does. He has to work side jobs. Paul's, Paul's got his own misgivings about the way that the, the new church is already acting. But once again, Paul is separating himself from those presenting a non-biblical gospel. A non-biblical gospel. And I, I got to tell you, that, that, that work of the enemy, those that peddle their own their own version of the gospel. That is not something that died off in the early church, but it is, it is rampant. It is present here today. I talked about this last week that the most recent surveys are suggesting that only 37% of pastors in the United States of America right now have a biblical worldview, that they are willing to compromise how they view Scripture and how they view Christian living in order to be culturally relevant or culturally appropriate. These peddlers, they did so for personal gains, acceptance, sometimes for notoriety. And I've got to make the argument that I think that's the same thing that happens today. Those that don't really necessarily believe what the Word of God has to say will present it in ways that help them with their own personal gains, their own acceptance, and their own notoriety, creating their own fame. And so what, who are the peddlers of God's word, right? Who are they? Well, at this point in time, they were dealing with, again, sexual immorality, uh, the way that people were living their lives, allowing them to worship other gods and still show up at church and be like, yeah, it's no big deal. You know, you've got a little side thing going on with this God over there. It's not an issue. Paul's calling those things out today. I believe that pastors who make culturally compliant arguments around right to life, sexual orientations, pronouns, violence, justice, uh, and so on, they are the peddlers of God's word. I, I got I to tell you, like, like, I am blown away, blown away at the number of pastors just, in, it's like a big coming out party in, in the last few weeks of pastors that are coming out going, all right, I think it's time you know, I don't really believe all the Bible. I've been teaching you for years, but that's okay. I want you to feel good about yourself. And so I'm going to sit here and make some new type of stand. And maybe, maybe you don't pay attention. That's okay. 
all right? If you're a biblical worldview and you hold on to the scripture, praise God, all right? But I'm telling you, I am seeing and people are sending me uh, shots of pastors standing on platforms all over the United States that are getting up and taking non-biblical views and making them now a part of their teaching. And that is what Paul is referencing. That is a peddler of the word. They are preaching a different gospel. And Paul says, if any other gospel is being presented than the one that we presented to you, hey, basically it's this, you need to get out. You need to get away from that. Because it is not a gospel that has the power to lead you to salvation. When there is dissension in the church, we must speak up to defend the gospel. I think that we just uh, have a culture right now uh, that is so similar to this culture in Corinth, and it is a culture that's just like, I just don't want to be in the conversation. I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to upset people, right? But on the other side of the table, there are people who are, who are saying, you know, well, you know, if you've got a, 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 a person who believes the Bible, don't invite them to Thanksgiving, Right? Don't, don't, don't invite them. Like, you don't have to put up with them. Kick them out of your life. Like, that's being said on one side of the aisle about people who have a biblical worldview. And this is not a political thing. This is a biblical worldview thing. People who believe the scriptures. There is a segment of our population that is saying, we just don't invite them anymore. They're intolerant, right? Tolerance is not love. I'm sorry. There are a lot of things that Growing up, by the grace of God, my parents were not tolerant of in my own life that shaped me to be a better person, that kept me from laying in a gutter somewhere, being found floating in a river. So tolerance is not an act of love. And I don't care how many people pitch temper tantrums saying that it is. And when I talk about it, I didn't really understand what was happening in the world when I was starting as a youth pastor. I had a, I had a young man uh, in, and I'm going to end with this. He was on our worship team, and it was a Wednesday night, and he's playing, and his uh, string pops, and he just screams the F word in the middle of the worship set, right? And I know you're thinking right now, like, like, oh my gosh, how crazy would that be, right? Yeah, it was crazy. And I was like, okay, well, we're done with worship. (laughs) And I got up, and I was like, dude, you need to go sit down. Right now, he was technically at that point where he was a uh, out of high school, so he wasn't technically a youth. And he sits down, and uh, I'm trying to move on and not make a scene because I'm in this really weird place in my own thing. It's like I don't want to create a scene. I don't want to like like I I want everybody to feel loved. And and uh, so then while I'm preaching, he's mad that I stopped the worship set, and so he's sitting there and he gets everyone talking and they're all pointing at me. And I was like, just get out, just leave, just go. Now, it was a Wednesday night, and back in the day, and still some, there was church service going on. And so this kid gets up, walks into the sanctuary where they're doing a Bible study, and interrupts the pastor and says, you need to come over here and deal with this guy right now. And the guy stops his sermon, what's going on? Okay, and he's like, can you come up here and, you know, gets an elder to come up and comes out, comes and talks to me. I tell him what happened, and he's like, Okay, yeah, obviously he can't lead worship, right? He's on board with me, and he says, we'll talk about this later. So the next day, we meet with his parents, and, and, and guys, this was 17 years ago, and uh, the mom and dad tell me 
uh, how are you ever going to win them to the gospel if you don't let them make mistakes? And I was like, you don't let your children make mistakes. You correct mistakes, and you continue to love them. And they said, no, 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 no. You need to learn to ignore stuff. And I was like, I'm not going to do it. Like, I'll quit before that happens. And then that guy got up and walked out of the pastor's office into the parking lot right by the window and laid on the, on the pavement and started pounding his hands and kicking his feet. And instead of mom and dad going, okay, we got to deal with this, they were like, look what you did to him. And I told, I told Carmen at the time, like, we had some crazy stuff, right? I mean, we had some crazy stuff said to us as youth pastors. We had, we had a, another guy tell us his daughter didn't feel loved by me. And I was like, what does that look like? Well, you don't, like, you don't hug her or, you know, embrace her. And I was like, yeah, she's like 13 years old. Like, you know, high fives are good for a youth pastor. And uh, he was like, no, 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 we just, we want her to feel like she's just loved by everybody. I'm like, well, if she has this, like, like lay on everyone's lap mentality, what are you going to do if she ends up pregnant? He'll go, well, she'll learn a valuable lesson that way, is what he told us. And we were like... Mm, well, we're going to do things a little bit different when we have kids, you know, because we didn't have kids at the time. But, but I didn't see what was happening, this shift at the time, right? I had, at Bible college, I had professors telling us there was a shift coming, and it was a shift around the idea of truth. They called it the postmodern mindset. They told us it was coming like prophets in the wind. And today, there is a culture that says truth is subjective to the individual, right? That might be your truth, but that's not my truth. And can I tell you, like, just like every other lie of the enemy, it flies in the face of Scripture. And so as followers of Christ, we work out our faith with fear and trembling. We have to change the way that we live our lives. It just, it's not God being mean. It's God protecting us. And if the world around us pitches a fit because they go, man, you're just not very tolerant, or you don't, whatever the little catchphrase of the day is, right, whatever it is, that's okay, right? Because you are showing and exemplifying a love that the world can't exemplify because it doesn't know it. The culture around us that's running from God, it can't exemplify that kind of love to bring correction and discipline and change behavior because it is controlled by an enemy that is at odds with God the Creator, and so when there is repentance among those who dissented, we should forgive and pursue unity. So this is not an eternal thing. When somebody pitches a fit, when somebody has a bad attitude, when somebody doesn't want to sit down and talk about it, but instead they want to go and talk with other people about it, and they come to a place of repentance, that's okay. But I, I got to tell you, I think that the church, the church, right, the one that Jesus is coming back for is going to continue to experience these fractures until the church, the one that he's coming back for, becomes unified and begins to say, no, 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 I'm not going to be silent anymore. I love you too much to be silent. That love is birthed inside of me, and I've got to have an opinion, and I've got to be a part of the conversation. And Paul says it hurts, it creates anguish, but I just, I can't sit there and be silent anymore. I can't sit there and be silent anymore. Let's stand to our feet. Anytime I talk about stuff like this, I always have somebody who goes, Pastor Jim, I, just, I didn't know that, you know, pastors were saying that or that that was happening in the world, right? Um, you know, a lot of times, like, we can get fatigued from the news, right? It's like, people are like, I'm just done watching the news. It just seems like a hopeless abyss of chaos, right? And the, and the same thing can happen when it comes to what's happening within local churches. Uh, and so my, my hope is not to bring despair, but to 
challenge those that call City Church home to a place where it's like, no, we can be a voice of love without being a voice of compromise. And I know that we can do it. I know that we can be light in the darkness. I know that we can stand for truth uh, in the midst of a, a society that wants to deny that there are any truths. So uh, we're going to close. If you are not saved and you want to know Jesus as Lord of your life, our prayer ministry teams are going to be available in the back to pray with you. Uh, knowing Jesus is, it's a course correction in life. It's, it's about changing the way that I think, the way that I live. Uh, it's allowing God's word and God's presence to lead me into a better way of living, ultimately, that leads me into, eternal, uh, into an eternal life with him. If you're sick in body, if you have any needs, if you have questions, prayer ministry team, we're available to pray with you. Uh, we serve a, a God that is alive and well. The king is on the throne. Jesus is returning. The testimonies are coming out. People's lives are being transformed. We have a friend in Florida. Uh, she had cancer that was creating little pits in her bone. Um, her bones were becoming frail. They told her there was nothing that they could do. And they pulled her off of chemo. Several weeks later, they were doing another scan. And she said, you know, what can we do? Can you remove tumors? And they said, we don't do surgery on people who don't have cancer. And not only does she not have cancer, but all the bones were healed up and there were no more holes in it. I can't tell you why God moves that way in one family and then in another he doesn't. But I do know this, God's sovereign. His ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. And so I'm not going to sit here and get angry when God sees it right and just to operate differently from household to household. And that's a, I got to tell you, like, I'm not trying to say, like, I'm some super mature person, but walking through that with our own family, like, it is a mature approach to the, to the gospel presentation and to coming into the presence of God and saying, God, here's what I'm asking, but I trust you. You're bigger than me, and you understand things I don't understand, but you tell me I can come. Amen. God's at work. That's what separates him from all the other ideas of God in the world is that the, the Christian God is absolutely at work in the lives of people and the testimonies of the saints are, are testimonies of healing and transformation. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that it is uncomfortable, that it can stir controversial ideas uh, into uncomfortable places, but we're okay with that. We're going to continue to walk out uh, the gospel that's presented inside of Scripture. Lord, we don't want to make excuses. We don't want to be the people who uh, ignore uh, what it is that you're saying. We want to be the body of believers who reflect as best to our ability we can um, your image. We love you and we thank you for all you do. Be with us in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. We love you guys as always. We'll see you next Sunday. Go change your world.